gospel now, I encourage you to remain standing and turn to our second reading of Scripture and our sermon text this morning, which is from Psalm 73. If you are using the Blue Pew Bible, that is on page 541. Psalm 23, an extraordinarily familiar passage of Scripture. Let us continue to give careful and diligent attention. This is God's inspired and inerrant and authoritative word. Psalm 23, a psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures indeed forever. Amen. You may be seated. And now let's seek the Lord's illumination on his word. Let us pray. Our God, we are so thankful to you for the word of God written, the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments. We thank you for breathing out these words through the sacred writers, for inspiring them. We thank you for preserving them down through the ages. And we thank you for providing translations so that we can hear the word of God in the language of our hearts. Our God, because it is your word, we stood at attention to hear it read. And now we ask, because it is your word, that you would help us to sit with illumination. Please, fill us with your Holy Spirit. Help us to rely on your Spirit to give us the understanding of your word. We pray this for all who listen and for the one who speaks. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Probably if I asked any one of you randomly chosen this morning, if you had a favorite song, probably most of you could answer. Most of us have a a favorite song or favorite songs, plural. Um, some of us have certain songs or, you know, maybe bits of songs that we've just kind of picked up at some point in our lives and we carry them with us throughout our lives. I will embarrass myself and give you one example. Um, in my early years of ministry in central Pennsylvania, I, I came across a song with a, with a line, a line that said something like this, Nobody said it was easy. No one ever said it would be this hard. And I thought, that's a very appropriate line to think about with gospel ministry. And it stuck with me over the course of years um, through my experience. And I'm sure that each of you have bits of songs or songs like that or, or bits of poetry that stick with you. Perhaps, you know, a song is just a sort of poem. Um, have you ever noticed, though, the power that these things have in us and over us, these, these favorite songs or these bits of music or these bits of poetry, if you like, 
how they can affect your mood, how they can really get at you. They can, they can get into your mind. They can, they can deeply move you. They can get kind of under your armor and hit you deeply. Have any of you ever noticed that, experienced that? Surely some of you have. Even Presbyterians are like, is it okay for me to nod my head? Just a little. Well, Psalm 23 is one of Scripture's most memorized poems, one of Scripture's most memorized songs. It has given comfort, encouragement, challenge, and power to Christian believers across, across the ages, from the time it was written down to the present time. Believers in Scripture's time and believers after the time of Scripture, the persecuted church, the church in every land, people have found so much comfort from the words of Psalm 23. It's a song for life's journey at any stage. Uh, the structure of Psalm 23 is not complicated. You can look at it really has kind of one, you know, two great pieces. You have verse 1, sort of the great promise. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And then you have that promise unpacked in verses 2 through 6. How God's shepherding care um, goes with us through life, through danger, even facing death and even beyond death. It's a great promise, wonderful, wonderful promise for us to consider this morning. It has captivated so many Christians, and not just Christians have been captivated by this, but this promise captivated our Lord Himself. You ever thought about when Jesus was saying those words that we read from John 10, when He says, I am the good shepherd, where did He get that image? Where did that image come from? If not from passages of Scripture such as this, where we are told that the Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is our shepherd. One of, one of the seven great I am statements that John records in his gospel is Jesus saying, I am the good shepherd. And so, this, this psalm has captivated Christians. It has captivated, captured the imagination of our Lord himself. Have you ever seriously meditated on it? Have you ever spent time just working through it, processing it, I confess to you again, uh, mentioning to a friend earlier before the service, that in almost 12 years of ministry, I realized I never preached on Psalm 23 until today. <laughs> because if this psalm has captivated the hearts of Christians throughout the ages, if it has captured the imagination even of our Lord Himself, is it not worth our meditation together? And so, as I have just a few Sundays left with you as one of your pastors, I thought it would be good for us this morning to, to work through this psalm together and meditate on it as three things. First, as, as it is a promise. Secondly, as it is a testimony. And thirdly, as it is power to live in our, in our broken world as followers of Jesus Christ. And so kids, if you've got your outlines, we're going to start by looking at this psalm as promise. We're going to look at Psalm 23 as promise. And the first thing we want to note, this is number one, is that as a promise, this first statement, the Lord or Yahweh, it's God's covenant name there, Yahweh is my shepherd, as a promise, that is both personal and it is total. It is a total promise. It's, it's personal in that it is meant to be believed personally, not just for other people, but for you. If you go back through, and even in the translation that we're using here at Covenant, and just count the number of times the psalmist uses the word my or me or I, in six verses, 17 times, 
What do you think he's trying to emphasize? He's trying to emphasize that this is not just a promise for some. This is a promise for every believer. The Lord is my shepherd. He is your shepherd. It's not just other people who shall not want. It is you who believe in Jesus who shall not want, or as I think a better translation puts it, I lack nothing. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. It's a personal promise. It is also a total promise. One of the commentators on this passage pointed this out, and it was such a good insight. I wanted to share this with you. He says that this image of the Lord as shepherd is the most, I'm quoting from him now, the most comprehensive and intimate metaphor. Metaphor is a word picture. It's the most comprehensive and intimate metaphor yet encountered in the Psalms. He says, usually the psalmist prefers a little bit more distant imagery, calling God my king, my deliverer, or calling the Lord my rock or my shield, all of which is true. He says, but now when you think of the Lord as your shepherd and, and, and God giving us that image to use, the image of a shepherd is much more comprehensive and intimate, and here's why. Because the shepherd lives with his flock, and the shepherd is everything to his flock. He is their guide. He is their physician. He is their protector. He is their provider. And you see this even in the language of the psalm itself. If you were carefully reading as we were going through, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Why? And then if you look at the rest of the psalm, who does all the big acting in this psalm? Who does all the hard things? (laughs) Who does the leading? Who does the restoring? Who does the comforting, the providing, the anointing? It's all whom? the Lord. And we, believers, are simply the sheep. All we do is we receive. I'm provided for. I'm the one who will lack nothing. I'm the one who's restored. I'm the one who's comforted. Speaking as the person of the believer, God is everything. He is total to His people. And this is a promise that He gives to every believer. It is a personal promise. Yahweh is my shepherd. I lack nothing. This is your song for the journey through this world to the next. But do you ever struggle to sing that? Do you ever struggle to really believe I lack nothing? If I sat down with any of you after service today and said, so tell me about your week. Did anything go wrong? Again, very few of us would not be able to give some answer, right? If you say, well, this went wrong. I wasn't expecting this. I really wish this had happened. And what we're really saying is something, something I lacked. I lacked something that I'd hoped for. So it can be hard, can it, to really embrace these words. I lack nothing. And you know what's cool? Is that the psalmist himself acknowledges this in verses 4 and 5. He says there are going to be really hard challenges. I'm going to walk through the valley of the shadow of death, or literally the, the valley of the death shadow. I'm going to walk through those hard times. I'm even going to have to face death. Verse 5, I'm also going to have to face enemies, people who oppose me. So the psalmist isn't, isn't denying those hard things. And yet in the midst of those hard things, facing them with open eyes, he can still say, because Yahweh is my shepherd, I lack nothing. How does he get there? Isn't that a good question? How does he get there? Well, he tells us. He tells us more as he explores and unpacks this idea, this promise that God is our shepherd. He tells us other things about what that means. And this is number two on your outlines, kids. To say that the Lord is your shepherd or the Lord is my shepherd is, secondly, to say that He is always intentional. 
Look at verse 2. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. Again, the, 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 word, the phrase there is literally, he makes me lie down in pastures of grass and leads me beside waters of rest. Now remember, verses 4 and 5 tell us that what this does not mean. This does not mean that you will never have a trouble-free existence. So then what does it mean to say that he, he makes me lie down in green pastures, he leads me to waters of rest? It means not that you will have a trouble-free existence, but that even your troubles happen to you for a purpose. That just like a shepherd is always thinking ahead, always thinking intentionally about what the, what the flock needs, where to guide them, when to take them here, when to take them there, orchestrating everything as much as he can to provide for them. So in the same way, the Lord our God is intentional about us. And that means that if he does lead you into the valley of the death shadow, or if he does lead you to face enemies, that because he is the one leading you and because he is with you, something extraordinary happens. And that thing is this, that even the valley of the shadow of death becomes a pasture of green. Even the table facing your enemies becomes waters of rest. That can be a little hard to believe, can't it? How could that possibly be true? Because of the next thing that we have in this text, number three, because our God, as our shepherd, is not just intentional. He is more creative than we can imagine. He's more creative than we imagine. Look at number three. It says, He restores my soul, and He leads me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Notice, it says paths of righteousness, not paths of easiness. Paths of righteousness, not paths of a trouble-free existence. What is God saying to us here in these words? He is saying that His plans for us are bigger than simply giving you a comfortable life. This is something that we need to hear because we are from birth, at least in this society, bred into thinking that the best possible thing that could ever happen to you is to obtain the comfortable life, the so-called American dream. Where it is reinforced to us all the time, even our vacation ads, you know, the Caribbean cruise, you know, where it's just you and your friends on a beach and it's perfect and quiet, not against Caribbean cruises. I saw one of you smiling. But that's not what God has. God has something bigger than that for us, something bigger in other words, if, if your vision of the best life, if your vision of the goal of existence is only the American dream or only the Caribbean cruise, then that is a failure of imagination because God's plans are so much bigger. What, what is God planning for those who love Him? Do you know? You can read about it at the very end of the Bible. He is planning a garden city that will span the world. A garden city that is full of colors, full of cultures, full of music, full of languages, where everybody loves one another, cares for one another, is kind to one another, and nobody sins. You won't even be able to sin anymore in your thoughts. That's God's bigger imagination. That's what it means, that He leads us in paths of righteousness. Now, how can we, this happen? How will God do this for us and in us? Well, it's not going to happen by making us comfy. Because most of us need a lot less comfort and a lot more righteousness. And so God is committed to our good. And so He shakes us up. How does He do that? Well, He gives us new hearts. 
And in giving us new hearts, He gives us new habits. And the, the, the hard thing about learning a new habit in a broken world as a person who is afflicted by sin is you need a lot of painful unlearning of the bad habits. And this is what is implied when he says in verse 3, he restores my soul. The, the word there translated restore is literally he brings back my soul. He brings it back for his name's sake. He's bringing us back to the source of true and everlasting good, namely himself, his sake. Whatever it takes, God is committed to make that happen in the life of every single one of his children. And so... Even the valley of the death shadow, even facing our enemies, God will turn for our good into green pastures and ultimately into waters of rest. Do you believe that? John Newton said it very well. He said, all things shall work together for good. Everything is needful that God sends. Nothing can be needful that He withholds. Everything is needful that He sends. Nothing can be needful that He withholds. Really just another way of saying verse 1, the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. And if God is willing to do whatever it takes, then that implies our fourth aspect of this promise, that He is indeed utterly committed. And I want you to see how that commitment moves through the rest of this psalm. Look at the movement in verses 4 through 6. He moves through the valley of the shadow of death or the valley of the death shadow where it seems like the psalmist is going to be swallowed up by the oblivion of death. But, oh no, because what happens in the next verse? Where does he land after passing through that valley? He lands, in verse 5, this is a little bit of a curious image until you understand what's going on here. He lands at a table in the presence of his enemies, and you think, that doesn't sound like much of a reward. How about a table with my friends? But, in the original context and in the ancient Near Eastern um, milieu, where this was written, the idea there is that God hosts a victory feast, and your enemies are present not to further antagonize you, but as prisoners of war, prizes of victory. And so he brings us through the death shadow valley to the victory feast where even our worst enemies are now in bondage and in prison as God hosts for us, as God prepares a table for us as God anoints our head with oil. So, through the suffering, to the victory, and then what? Verse 6, to the happy ending. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of Yahweh forever. There's great assurance there. Not just is God going to do this, but as God does this, He is with us every step of the way. Did you see that as well? Verse 4, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Even when I'm facing my enemies, you prepare a table before me. You anoint my head with oil. And verse 6, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me. See, the whole way. God is intentionally moving us. He's utterly committed, and He is with us the whole time. You never walk alone through any of these stages. And that word that's translated mercy there in verse 6, you probably see a footnote. It's, it should be translated steadfast love. This is one of these very special Old Testament words, chesed. It literally means God's promise-keeping love, 
his faithfulness to all of his promises. And where at the end of the verse it says, I shall dwell in the house of the Lord, again, literally, it should be, I will return, I will come back to the house of the Lord. What's he saying? What's the point? The point is that this psalm is not talking about kind of a one-time escape or a one-time invitation to feast at the Lord's house. No, no, no. This is expressing God's long-term commitment to bring us back. Back to where? To the home that we lost in the Garden of Eden. To the home that humanity forsook when we rebelled against God and allied with Satan. Through the work of Jesus Christ, God is saying, I am utterly committed to bringing back all of my people. He will bring you back, brothers and sisters in Jesus. He's going to bring you home. This is a song for your journey home. Can you imagine what that will be like to finally arrive in that far green country? And the Lord says to you, welcome home. Isn't that going to be glorious? And so I want you to see here as a promise that Psalm 23 is not not, just a, just not just a pretty poem, although it is that. It's not just providing us with some really good pastoral, rural imagery, although it does that as well. It is a song for your journey through this world to the new creation. And if you make it your song, if you really embrace it, it will change your life. And I realize that we say that a lot. Pastor Patton and I say, if you believe this, it will change your life. Well, we're always telling you the truth. But I know that sometimes it's hard to believe. And so the second thing I want us to do this morning is look briefly at Psalm 23 as a testimony. Is this psalm only for those who who live comfortable lives with no troubles? No, indeed. In fact, number five on your outline, Psalm 23 is firstly the song of a shepherd. Who wrote the psalm? The heading tells us it was a psalm of David. David reflecting on his own experience as a shepherd. What did that involve? It involved camping in the wilderness with with sheep. It involved fighting off bears and lions. He tells us this in 1 Samuel 17. And if you think about the rest of David's life, it wasn't like it got easier, was it? He went from keeping the sheep, which must have seemed like Mickey Mouse work in retrospective, because then he had to go fight a giant. And then he had his, his... King, his father-in-law, Saul, chasing him around, trying to kill him for a number of years. And then he became king, and even then it wasn't sunshine and lollipops. Things were difficult. He was fighting wars all the time, eventually having even a couple of his own sons try to displace him. Did David have an easy life? No. And yet David was greatly comforted by the idea of God as a shepherd. It's not just for those who live a comfortable life. It's for those in the hardest circumstances. In fact, it's arguable that David may have got this idea of the Lord as his shepherd from a much earlier shepherd, you know, the first place in Scripture that, that God is referred to as a shepherd of his people is on the lips of Jacob at the end of his life as he is an old man blessing his, his children in Egypt. And if you know the story of Jacob, you know that it was not an easy life. So Psalm 23 is firstly the song of the shepherds. Secondly, number six It became a song of the saints. It's so interesting how this image then is picked up both in Scripture and even beyond Scripture. People have found so much comfort in it. Psalm 80 that we confessed earlier, a psalm of Asaph picked up this image. Give ear, shepherd of Israel. 
In Ecclesiastes, at the very end of Ecclesiastes chapter 12, we are told that the words of the wise are given by one shepherd. In the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, the Lord is referred to as the shepherd of His people. So within the scope of of Scripture itself, within the canonical writings, God's people in all sorts of situations, Asaph may be at the peak of the the prosperity of God's people, Uh, the, the writer of Ecclesiastes at a little different time, and then the prophets in very difficult times still clinging to this image that the Lord is our shepherd, and therefore, even in the worst situations, we lack nothing. And then people outside of Scripture in, in later, much later history. How many of you ever read the book Endurance about the Shackleton expedition to Antarctica? Well, if you know, no, 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 spoiler alert, um, it didn't go well. And at one point, um, Captain Shackleton and his crew are basically abandoning most of what they brought with them because they're going to try to survive. And he had a Bible that had been given to him by the Queen Mother. But the Bible is heavy, and they have to minimize weight. And so what does he do? He opens up the Bible and tears out just a very few pages. And do you know one of the pages that he tore out to carry with him and his men on their journey home was the page that contained Psalm 23. Even in the most excruciating and trying circumstances, people find comfort in these words. Why? If you think about it, why, why these words? Why are these so important? It's because of number seven, because most of all, Psalm 23 became the song of our Savior, became the song of Jesus. Now, it's a very well-known, of course, we read it earlier, it's a well-known fact that Jesus claimed to be the good shepherd. But do you know how He became the good shepherd? By first becoming the Lamb of God who died for the sins of the world. In fact, way before Jesus says in John 10, I am the good shepherd, in John chapter 1, John the Baptist, the forerunner, is saying of Him, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And even at the tail end of that reading from John 10 that Elder Anderson read, after Jesus says, I'm going to lay down my life and take it up again, He says, this charge I have received from my Father. Before He was the Good Shepherd, in order to become the Good Shepherd, He had to become the Passover Lamb. And that means that these words are not just true of Jesus on the the shepherd's side, but they are also true of Him for us as one who had to live these words, as the Lamb of God. In order to be good, the, the Good Shepherd, Jesus had to first become the Passover Lamb. He had to walk through the valley of the death shadow. He had to trust that His Father would bring Him through to victory over all His enemies. He had to be the one to trust that God would raise Him from the dead after dying for our sins and restore Him to His home and to the house of the Lord forever. And the reason these words are such comfort to God's people is because they are not just comfort to us or a map for our lives, a song for our journey home. They were the song of our Lord as He journeyed to win a home for us. And then there's this great gospel rule as we think about how we can bring this into our lives and make it power for our own lives. There is this great rule of the gospel. What the Father requires, the Son acquired, and the Spirit applies to us. What the Father requires, the Son acquired, and the Spirit applies 
to us. We've said this in other ways before, that everything that Jesus wants to do in us, He's already done for us. So how do we bring this into our lives? Knowing that Jesus lived this psalm, how do we live this psalm in Him? A couple more points and then we're finished. Number eight on your outlines, kids. Psalm 23 will become our song, first and foremost, as we believe its promises personally. The psalm that we've been reading, look at how many times it says, my, I, me. And John 10, the, the gospel promise this morning, I give them eternal life. My sheep hear my voice and follow me. In other words, Jesus in his gospel is offering to every single person here, and indeed to every single person in the whole world, he is offering the free offer of the gospel, a promise to be included among those who can say, my, I, and me. When you put your heart in His hands, He puts you in His flock. And you are those who can say, I shall not want. He makes me lie down. He will be with me through the death valley. You can say, He brings back my soul. He restores my soul. Some of you here today may not know the Lord yet in this way. Some of you may not have put your heart in His hands. And I want to tell you today that God right now in Jesus Christ is calling you to that. He is calling you to believe His promises. He is calling you to admit that you are a sheep. And guys, sheep is dumb compared to God. And to put your heart in the hands of Jesus who will never let you go. Will you do that? Will you believe His promises personally? That's the first step in making this the song for your life. But how will it change you? How will it, how will it really have an effect? Number nine, it will change you as it becomes your song, not just for Sundays, but for the weekdays. And this calls us to be intentional. I just finished a book yesterday that talked about just how distracted we are in this life. And in our cultural moment, our moment of history, so many distractions most of you, like me, are carrying around a distraction machine in your pockets day by day. The only way we're going to make it through this world as followers of Jesus is if we are intentional, intentionally meditating on His promises. That involves what the ancients used to call the discipline of soliloquy, talking to yourself, bringing the gospel to mind to yourself, preaching the promises to your own heart. You have to say to yourself, the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. There are many ways to, to meditate on Scripture. One way is to just go through and emphasize one word at a time. The Lord is my shepherd. 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 I lack nothing. And it may seem like it doesn't have much of an effect, but since I began to study to preach this passage over the last couple of weeks, I tell you it has had an effect as I've been going through my days sometimes pacing around the church thinking about a sermon, sometimes out visiting with some of you, sometimes just doing other things for life and family and reminding myself, especially in those moments when I'm frustrated, why isn't this like that? I lack nothing. The Lord is my shepherd. That's where the rubber meets the road when it comes to believing the gospel, believing it in the moment, preaching it to yourself. You have to be intentional. You have to make it your song, not just for Sundays, but for the weekdays. And so when you go to work this week, when you go to school, when, you, when you're doing whatever it is you're going to do, remind yourself, especially when it's annoying, when things are annoying, the Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. 
And then thirdly and finally, it will transform you not only as you believe it, not only as you sing it, but as it, you make it a feast for your imagination. A feast for your imagination. All things work together for good. God is renewing us day by day. This isn't just theory. This was proven in the life of Christ. And as we've already said, as He does in us, as He does this in us, as He really restores our soul, as He causes you to walk in paths of righteousness for His name's sake, as He leads you through suffering to that ultimate victory, is there any limit to the good that God can imagine? Again, we so often fall short, brothers and sisters. You so often fall short, and so do I, when you try to imagine heaven and you try to imagine it simply as the best thing you can imagine. That's not, that's not the limit. Heaven is not circumscribed by your imagination or mine. The new creation is, is built based on God's imagination. And how big is God's imagination? Infinite. There is no limit to the amount of good that God can imagine. There is no limit to the amount of joy or pleasure that we will experience in the new creation. So let, this, let these words become a feast for your imagination. They are short enough that you can memorize them, even if memorization isn't your thing. But imagine them through the lens of the gospel. Preach these words to yourself and let them be a feast for your imagination. Now you might say, But what about when I fail? What about when I falter? What about when I forget the words? What about when I fall back into lesser songs or more sinful tunes? What what about when my life starts singing a bad song? Is there any good news then? There is still good news then. Because even when you and I forget the words, Jesus never forgets the words. And that's the good news and that's the big promise. That Jesus never stops singing Psalm 23. And even when we forget the words, His promise-keeping love pursues us. Because that's literally what what verse 6 says. I know it says in our Bible, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me. That, that, That word is used because the King James language has just made these words very fixed. But the Hebrew there literally says, surely goodness and steadfast love, surely goodness and promise-keeping love shall pursue me. Even when you forget the words, Jesus will never forget them. He will always sing Psalm 23 over you, and He will pursue you even when you forget the words. His promise-keeping love pursues us all the way home. Do you believe that? And let us pray. Our God, we do thank You for the words of Scripture. We thank You for this particularly well-known passage. Our God, we pray that it would become the song of our lives. Many of us have favorite songs, and that's okay, usually. But we pray that this could become our most favorite song, that it would become the journey home song for each of us, because we are on a journey to eternity, each one of us. We pray that you would give us the faith, the intentionality, and the joy of these words. And may they begin to reshape our minds and hearts as your Spirit works them in us and through us, And may we remember that you will pursue us all the way to the new creation. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.